So, um, brothers and sisters in the Dhamma, I'd like to begin with a little chant that we do as part of our tradition as a way of just acknowledging homage to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, and as a way of just letting everyone know that in listening to a Dhamma and considering a Dhamma is a special time. Namo etasa bhagavato arahato asama sambuddhasa Namo etasa bhagavato arahato asama sambuddhasa Namo etasa bhagavato arahato asama sambuddhasa Udangdamang sanggandamasami And so I'm happy to be here again. And thank you, John, for welcoming us up a lovely way. For Donna, for fielding emails and taking care of correspondence and seeing that I got here okay. I spent the last three weeks at Deer Park, the monastery just in Escondido, a Titnanhang community of monks and nuns. And I would hope that you all know about that community. And I would hope that it is part of your um, field of practice that you go and visit there and spend time practicing together with that community. I have been a nun now for over 20 years. I have been a bhikkhuni for one year. The reason why we didn't have a full ordination is a complex story. But uh, in the last couple of years, I've come back to this country, and last year was given bhikkhuni ordination. So I'm a fully ordained Theravadan bhikkhuni, and there are not very many of us yet. Maybe in this country, there's 20 or 30 bhikkhunis in the whole country. Yeah. At Deer Park, there were 21 bhikkhunis there, and 17 bhikshus there. And so since I left my community in England, this is the first time I've been in a monastery of monks and nuns living together. And I can tell you that it brings joy to my heart. It's like medicine. Because as much as we are all the same in brothers and sisters in old age, sickness and death, monks and nuns live in a different gravitational force field. You know, you have type A people, and you have type M people. (laughs) And type M people are noteworthy in their distinct difference in the way that they operate. So for me to be surrounded by type M's was like medicine. To be around sisters, each of whom is like a mindfulness bell. Their posture and their dignity and their inner joy and their willingness to surrender to the community and participate in everything is just so lovely. And to see the way the monks and the nuns live together like brothers and sisters and support each other in the practice was also like medicine for me. And so one morning I got up very, very early and I went up to the morning meditation and I had no idea that it was going to be an eclipse. But the moon was full, and I noticed that it was looking like it was going to be an eclipse, and I was just mesmerized 
to walk up the hills. And when you walk up the steps in the morning meditation, you are you are greeted with the aroma of the sage. And the aroma of the sage is so so striking that the only suitable thing to do is to stop and to breathe and to let your senses awaken with the aroma of the sage. And as I was walking up the steps and looking at this eclipsed moon, there was a brother up there who was then doing stick exercises, and I asked if I could join him. So together, in the eclipsing of the moon, we did stick exercises, and then he recognized that nobody had come to ring the big bell. So he went and he rang the big bell, and as he was ringing the big bell, he was singing a song. I entrust myself to the Buddha, and the Buddha entrusts himself to me. I entrust myself to the Dhamma, and the Dhamma entrusts herself to me. I entrust myself to the Sangha, and the Sangha entrusts herself to me. I entrust myself to the earth, and the earth entrusts herself to me. And as I was listening to his song, sung with just the fullness of his heart, and had come up the steps with the howling of the coyotes, I just wept with the extraordinary beauty of what was unfolding before me. And the poignancy of being in a contemplative place where people are all coming together to practice and to be greeted in such a loving way, with such a a warm-hearted invitation to awaken. And so these last three weeks have been like medicine, because in the last two years, much of the last two years, I have spent as a solitary monastic in Colorado. And I left Colorado in April, and I have been traveling and have been here and there, and I spent the three months uh, Vasa season in the desert at Mahapajapati with a few other sisters. And that was lovely. But this was a whole thriving community in a monastery that is specially built in an area that is powerful with mountains that surround and a land that reminds you to wake up. And so I would highly encourage people here to remember that it is very rare to be living in a place of such close proximity to a flourishing Buddhist monastery that is comprised of healthy community of monks and nuns and wisdom teachings that very much go to the heart and help us learn how to live without confusion. The Western Vipassana scene has been rising out of the lay communities flourishing. But one of the drawbacks of that is it's very rare that monastics are present in these groups. And there is something that is missed when you don't have contact with monastics, 
that is something you cannot know until you have contact with monastics. And in your backyard is this flourishing monastery filled with an extraordinary community of practitioners who are completely committed to awakening and committed to awakening in a way which is inclusive of everyone and very gentle and very loving. So I wanted to speak this evening about the return of the light and certainly the eclipse and in two days we have the winter solstice. These are seasonal times that allow us to remember the change of what happens when the days start to grow longer. Now, you live in San Diego, and so it is not as harsh winter and is not as dark a night as in other parts of the world. I go tomorrow to Colorado, and they're in the middle of a snowstorm. And when I was living in Colorado Springs, at this time of year, the sun dips over the mountain at 3.30. And after 3.30, the temperature drops 10 or 15 degrees, and it is dark until 7 o'clock in the morning. It's dark and it's cold. And the landlord, who is the owner of the little hermitage where I live, he lives nestled at the foothills of Pikes Peak Mountain. And for six weeks of the year, his house gets no sun. And so when the sun comes back is really a very significant time. And so one notices it in a prominent way where in San Diego it would be possible to not pay such careful attention because there's a lot of sun here and not very much snow. And when it's really cold, it's maybe 35. (laughs) But for many parts of the world, this is not the case. And so the return of the light is a big, important part of the year where the nights start to grow shorter and the days start to grow longer and the warmth is moving towards something that we can begin to hope for. The tradition that I come from is the forest tradition. And the forest tradition existed even before the Buddha, where people lived and have lived and continue to live in close proximity with nature as a way of understanding the mind. The forest tradition that comes from the Buddha is the tradition of living in nature with very few possessions and letting nature be a mirror for what happens in our own minds. The change that we see, the instability that we see, the grasping for security that we see, the birth and the death that we see. This is all something that we can see in the trees, in the leaves falling, in the colors. 
We can see it in the spiders spinning a web. We can see it in the birds on the beach looking for their food. We can see it in every part of nature. So this morning I was really delighted that I found a companion who was willing to get up at five o'clock in the morning so that we could go up to the mountain and have breakfast because the mountain is very, very special place with the fragrances and to watch the colors of the day emerge. So she and I walked in total silence up the mountain until we got to what is known by the sisters as the breakfast mountain rock. And somebody had very, very generously come yesterday with pomegranates. And so I had a pomegranate in my backpack and opened it up. And my companion was sitting quietly. And she did not know about this generous gift of pomegranates. And so when she opened her eyes and she looked, she was met by half of a shining pomegranate looking back at her. And with the fresh morning air sitting on the breakfast mountain rock, you could just watch her delight at being greeted with such spectacular wonder as a pomegranate smiling back at you on the mountain. And when you walk on the mountain, you can feel the footsteps and you can feel the earth receive each step. And as you walk in this way, with this kind of care and attention, you can recognize that the walk and the walking and the mountain and the smell of the sage and the morning light are not something that you can separate. The person dissolves in the experience of walking. And as that happens, there's just the stillness and the movement and the smell and the peace and the joy that comes from each moment. So the return of the light is something that is our season now and it's a very challenging time for many people because the Christmas season has in it a tremendous pressure to engage socially, to shop, to buy presents. And there's this kind of strange custom that we've developed that if you love somebody, you give them something. And the more it costs, the more it means that you love them. And we have forgotten what it is to walk with the earth and to breathe with each other and to look into another person's eyes and to be still and to appreciate what happens with the presence of being with another person just in the moment and enjoying a flower or a seashell or the birds running on the beach. 
we have forgotten that our presence is our greatest gift. And so the return of the light brings to us this juxtaposition of a time that asks us to go inward and a social time that is demanding that we stay engaged socially. And for many times, the way that we are engaged around the holidays isn't always the most nourishing. It isn't always the most reflective or the most tender. And there's pressure that if one doesn't do that, then somehow there's something about one's feeling about how one feels about the family. And so there's a pull between the nature and the lack of light, which is asking us to be quiet and still and inward and reflective, and our social context, which is pulling us outward, asking us to shop and engage in activities that sometimes take us away from our instinct about what feels what is needed at this time. In the Buddhist teachings, the teachings of Hiri and Otapa are the shining lights and the guardians of the world. Hiri is moral shame and Otapa is moral dread. And this is not the kind of toxic shame that we feel when somebody shames another person. It's the kind of natural recoiling away from something which is unskillful. It's the kind of knowing if something is going to be harmful, one doesn't want to do that. And this quality of Hiri and Otapa is known as the guardian light of the world. It's the thing that makes it possible for the path to unfold. Without Hiri and Otapa, it would not be possible for the heart to open in the Dhamma. It would not be possible for liberation. If there was no sense of moral conscience, we could not progress. And so the reason why it is really helpful to recite the refuges and the mindful trainings is to begin to polish and to strengthen our sense of what is skillful in this world and what is not skillful in this world. That our sense of hearing and utapa can become a light that guides us. It can be a light that protects us and shows us where we are free to tread and where we need to be very careful and where we need to, must not go. Now, in our contemporary society, there's huge areas of gray that are difficult to navigate and things that we have to deal with that the Buddha did not have to deal with. The Buddha didn't have to deal with internet. The Buddha didn't have copyright laws. The Buddha didn't have some of the complexities that we have to deal with. 
And yet, when we're interested in living an ethical life and we're interested in living a way where we're not causing harm to ourselves or to anybody else, then it's really important that we take an interest in how do we live in our own world in a way that makes sense. The Buddha didn't have video games. So one of the ways that we can protect and polish our sense of wanting to live without causing harm is to gather and periodically reaffirm that this is a commitment that we have. So it delights me to hear that this is part of what you do as a part of this group. I have been to other groups and they don't even know what the five mindfulness trainings are. They don't have them, they don't talk about them, they don't recite them. And so it is something of of flabbergasting to me that a, a group that is interested in meditation doesn't have as a foundation the reference point of the five precepts or the five trainings. Because to me, this is fundamental. It's essential. When there is an understanding of the importance of living this way, then one can begin to live with restraint. Because the five trainings give a a guideline for activities of body and speech and mind. But they do not help with the subtle arisings of the mind that cause confusion, that lead to the intention to act or to speak. And so in order to allow Hiri and Otapa to shine, not only do we need to cultivate the training guidelines, but we also need to understand that there are times when it is really helpful to practice restraint. And so you can notice that if you get angry, your attention will be completely fixated on the things that made you angry. You will not be thinking about beautiful things. You will not be thinking about the cloud or the eclipse or how beautiful the song was to hear the monk chanting as we went up to the meditation hall. You might miss the birds playing on the seashore completely, even if they're right there. And our attention is focused like a rockweiler grabbing hold of somebody on what has made us angry. And we loop around and around and around why it has made us angry, the fact that we feel completely justified in being angry. And what we need to do is to learn how to move our attention from what has grabbed us and bring us to something else to allow our attention to suffuse with something which is peaceful and joyful and calming and nourishing. And if the thought comes up again of what makes us angry, to not allow our attention to go there, but to direct it elsewhere, to breathe, to feel our feet on the ground, 
to feel the wind against our face, to notice the sky. So we restrain our attention from moving to that which is compelling because we know that does us no good. We stay with something which is soothing and nourishing and stabilizing. And when we have reestablished mindfulness, then we can pick up what has made us so angry and contemplate it in a way where we're not just getting stuck in loops and going around and around and around and around in a way that is not serving anyone except our own self-righteous indignation. Some people get lost in anger. Some people get lost in greed. And greed can manifest in many, many different ways. You know, it was very funny. When I was living at the monastery, one of the monks said that when people would come to the monastery and offer the food, some monks were completely fixated on the food. And some monks were completely fixated on the very lovely people who were coming to offer the food. And I giggled because both of these things did not activate my mind. I got fixated on tools. (laughs) So when I would see really lovely tools, my mind would grab hold of it and I would try and figure a way that I would see how I could get these lovely tools. And once there was a ladder and it was going up to the roof and being the person that I was, when I would see a ladder going up to the roof, I would climb up the ladder. And there were people who were putting on a new roof And the work maintenance man was up there checking on how they were doing. And I looked, and they had a very wonderful tool that shot these nails into the tiles. And this person knew me very well. And he took one look at me looking at that nail gun, and he said, you can't have one. So greed has many, many, many different expressions. And so if food is what activates you, you need to be careful what you do with your eyes and your sight and your thoughts around food. And if beautiful, lovely people activate you, then you need to be careful around that. And for me, I needed to be very careful when I walked into the tool shop, particularly when the monastery had given 3,000 pounds as a budget for spending. (laughs) So we can use the precepts to give us a general framework for our behavior and speech. We can use sense restraint for giving us the ability to watch how we work with the subtle feelings that are arising. But we need also to be able to cultivate wisdom. Because without wisdom, then what happens is is that we're constantly running in fear from the things that activate us. And we're running towards the things that we desire. If we don't have a deep understanding about what goes on in our mind and hearts and bodies, then our world is a world of moving towards and moving away 
from what we want and what we don't want. And there's no peace in running. And there's no peace in grasping. So without wisdom, no matter how adept we are at keeping precepts, and no matter how careful we are with our sense restraint, we still can get knocked off our feet, off our balance, because we don't have a deep understanding about what is happening. And so to have a deep understanding has got to be the ability to contemplate what is arising in the present moment and to see that what we are experiencing is not who we are. The smell of the coffee is what we are experiencing. It is not who we are. The desire to be in a loving relationship is what we are experiencing. It's not who we are. It's not our essence. The desire to move away from pain or loneliness or sadness or confusion is what we can be experiencing in the present moment. But it's not our essential nature. It is something that arises. It comes when the conditions are present. It stays as long as the conditions sustain it. And when the conditions are no longer supportive, it disbands, it goes. When we relate to the world with wisdom, when we are not afraid of what happens, when we're not afraid of the things that we love or the things that we fear, when we know who we are, when we're not afraid of our own death because we know what is there when everything falls away, then the light has returned. And that is our dwelling place. And that light is not dependent on the sun, is not dependent on the season, and is not dependent on the phase of the moon. That light, that light of wisdom, is the light that we aspire to realize in our meditation practice. It's the light we aspire to see in each other as brothers and sisters waking up on this path together. It's the light that you see in the monks and the nuns at Deer Park. It's the light that you see in the Dharma reflections that are offered there. It's the light of wisdom that shines the truth on what is correct and where real abiding freedom can be found. This is the first time I have spent any time with the first time I spent any time with sisters at all was in a monastery in Thailand. And I spent two weeks there. Um, this was on uh, a pilgrimage when I was in Asia in 1987. And I had gone there with the intention of exploring what it might be like for me to be a nun. 
because I had a deep aspiration of being interested in being a nun since 1979. So from the time I was 17, when I first encountered the Dhamma, the teachings of the Dhamma, it was like somebody throwing a match on a bonfire in Australia or in the desert that had been doused with with kerosene. It was just like... And from the first week of being in that class, even though we were just in a lecture theater at a university, I felt like, without a doubt, I knew that was going to be the center of my life. And within a month of being in that class, I had a vision of being a nun. Now, there's no cultural context that you can make sense out of that. I come from a Jewish ancestry, 100% Jewish. We don't have nuns. <laughs> I am a very free-spirited person. I don't like structure and rules. There is no way that you would be able to look at me and the geographical or ethnographical demographics that I come from and make any sense about how, at 17, I wanted to be a nun. Okay? But for me, from the time I was 17, even though I didn't know what nuns were or where they were or how they lived or what it meant, to me what it was was the ability to focus one's entire life towards the aspiration to return home to this light that knows what one's own true nature is. So when I was in Thailand and I was spending time with nuns, again in that community, they were nuns who were teenagers. They were nuns in their 20s. They were nuns in their 40s. They were nuns in their 50s. They were some nuns in their 80s. And they had spent long periods of time in their life as nuns. And for me, it was the first time I had had any contact, really, with nuns. And it was like a breath of fresh air to see a community of women practicing like that together. My community that I had been part of for 20 years, our demographics were mostly European, and the age range was usually from 30 to 60 We didn't have very young ones, and we didn't have ones who were much older. But here at Deer Park, they have nuns who are in their early 20s, and they have nuns in their 80s. And to me, it is such a deeply nourishing thing to be in a community of sisters that spans such a range of ages, of maturity, of life experience, and to feel the, the steadiness of their community together and to be part of that. Now, one of the things that touched me very, very deeply, the nuns have their own separate space and they have very clear boundaries between their space and the monk space. And the nuns have their own meditation in the evening time. And I love listening to the nuns chanting. I just love listening to the nuns chanting. It's like you have these people, many of whom are very shy and incredibly timid, 
and you get them chanting and you have this like magnificent orchestra emerging from these tiny, quivering, shy, trembling creatures that are speaking become the voices of the earth. I just love it. And whether they speak in Vietnamese or English to me makes no difference. The power of their presence and what they are expressing in their chanting just goes right to my heart. So I love the chanting and I love sitting just with the sisters in the lay community there. One night, we were sitting there in Clarity Hamlet. All the sisters, we had done our chanting. We finished our chanting and we were going to get up to bow. And all of a sudden, the door opens and in comes barging the monks with candles and they turn off the lights and they surround us and they start singing Christmas carols. (laughs) The whole monks and all of the laymen come to the nuns' community having rehearsed about 20 minutes of Christmas carols. And such premeditated act of kindness. I just wept. It was so beautiful, you know? So tender, so loving, and so lovely to see this kind of thing happening together. So there's a light that can shine when a community lives in harmony and supports everybody who comes into that field to also wake up. So we can use the light of the sun, we can use the return of the light of the sun, We can use the season. We can use our own aspiration to live with harmlessness. We can use our sense restraint. We can use our wisdom. And we can use the power of the community practicing together to allow the light to return. To know what the light is when it has returned to rest there. So I would like to just offer these words of encouragement for your practice this evening. And again, just say you have a unbelievable resource in your backyard a priceless, precious resource in your backyard. I would hope you can go on a field trip (laughs) and take use. They have practice days on Sundays and practice days on Thursdays and retreats and mindfulness days. All kinds of things happening there. Just to be in the presence of brothers and sisters practicing like that is really very precious. Very, very precious. So when I give a Dhamma talk, I expect nobody to believe me. I am not asking you to believe a single word I said. What I would like is you to take what I say and reflect on it. And if what I say means nothing, has no resonance, doesn't touch you, then just leave it. If it touches you, know that it touches something which is inside of you. It's a wisdom that's inside of you. It's not my wisdom. 
pay attention to that. Listen to that. Take note of that. So the spirit of these reflections is that they are indeed reflections. An opportunity to reflect on your own body, heart, and mind in a way that supports waking up. For each of us, for all of us, for all of us together. That at this time, this Christmas time, this solstice time, that we can be present and that can be our gift to our families, to ourselves, to the earth. And that we need not forget that our presence, our tenderness, our ability to be with each other, with warmth, with genuine contact, and interest and affection that is our greatest gift there is no thing that we could possibly ever give that would be more important than that thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.